Lucky you. 36 best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> so you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care if all your members threw a few puffs down and no, they would go 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 get, get them. So your dad and you, what are you feeling in your legs? I feel it in my. I went to my right leg and now, if I got through this head, like this head was going to come off, I'm going to throw this club head. I'm going to throw this club. So Billy, we are thrilled to have today's special guest, Mike Burke. Son of the famous Jackie Burke Jr., who we're looking at here. We'll talk about that in a moment. He was a longtime assistant pro with Claude Harmon, and he worked with Mo Delaporta. Billy, what do you got to say about this? I picked up some good tips about how to throw my club. That's unbelievable. (laughs) You were basically given permission by your dad to throw golf clubs. That must have been awesome. Uh, All the time. He was pretty good at throwing them, too. He was... He had a temper when he was younger as a pro. And, um, but in this video clip, he was teach his father taught him this lesson. Cause he used to sit when my grandfather, Jack Burke senior was given lessons, he would sit there by him and listen to all of his lessons. And one of the lessons he was trying to teach the gentleman was how to release and let it go on the and make a swing that they didn't hold on to the grip handle and they would let the club go through and he used his legs and he showed them how to use their feet. So he was very athletic um, swinger. And my dad was a very natural player and his grandfather taught at river Oaks from 1922 to 1946. And when he passed, so my dad learned literally sitting by Jack Burke senior at river Oaks country club. And the other thing that's important is Jack Burke senior assistant pro at the pro shop at river oaks was jimmy demerit wow was that also in houston yes they were both my dad was a youngster coming up and jimmy demerit was my grandfather's assistant and he worked at river oaks with my grandfather jack burke senior and that's how my dad met jimmy demerit he was 10 years older than my father and he was his mentor in life who was it that they ventured down to Texas to bring golf to Texas because it wasn't big in Texas. It must have been your grandfather, yes, father Jack Burke Senior. Yes, he was from Philadelphia, That's and the, there was there was a lot of uh, oil money in Houston, obviously at the time in 1922, and they started River Oaks Country Club, and they brought Jack Burke Senior in in order to start River Oaks Country Club. He was a very good player. He has an unbelievable track record. He's won several tournaments uh, in his sections, but he was mostly a teacher, and that's what his job was. He was brought in to Houston to start River Oaks Country Club, and he was the first pro there, and he let, he stayed until he died in the war. My dad was 21, and he was in San Diego in a Marine in the Marines, and he passed, and he had to come back. So we've been in the golf business in Houston for a hundred years. That's amazing. And you brought it to Houston and you're right. Think of all the people wasn't so many people, University of Houston golfers, how many right. people, you know, Billy Harmon talks about the Harmon tree. You got the Burke right. tree, 
so it was in river oaks was an interesting back then it was i don't say it was the wild west but it was close and so my dad would always go out to the club he'd go with his grandfather my grandfather every day and my grandfather would give a lesson and so he'd say little jackie you go play and so he would play with babe jetrison zaharias all the time because she took lessons from my grandfather and howard hughes was a member there and he and they would always say oh jackie go play with howard hughes and howard hughes played in tennis shoes and they called him tennis hughes <laughs> <laughs> and he turned out to be howard hughes it was amazing howard but hughes. there was an Harvey Pennock came there all the time he was there a lot so there really? was a lot of older <laughs> pros that uh, revered my grandfather and he was a really good teacher and so they would come to the River Oaks and then they'd go after to the house for dinner. And my dad would sit around the table listening to all their conversations. Well, Billy has a relationship, but something like that with Howard Hughes. Was it your. Uh... My uncle. <clears throat> yeah. My uncle bought all those uh, films from him and started yeah. a million dollar movie. <clears throat> so there was a lot of there was a lot of really good players come through the city and my grandfather. Jack Burke Sr. played the first round of golf at Memorial Park, which is now the, the site of the Houston Open in 1922. And during the war, you know, they all left to go to Mr. Demerit. My dad all went to the to the war. And then when they passed, he came back when Jack Burke Sr. passed. He had eight children. My dad was the oldest. And the only thing missing is the golf club. That's right. <laughs> But look at that perfect finish, and you wouldn't have known instead of hitting a ball, he threw the club. So it was no different if he was hitting a ball or if he's throwing the club, and he was trying to teach the release, right? Yes. And also remember back then it was a wooden shafted club, and there were different flexes. So he was trying to get them to release. You know, the shafts now are more more adaptable to a, to a release. But back then it was a wooden shaft, so it, they were holding, and he just – with leather grips he just said look you gotta you gotta rotate you gotta use your feet you gotta use your body it's a use your whole core so he's a very uh, natural teacher he just talks to you he doesn't draw lines and he doesn't use video so th the example in this video was he always imagined that there was a he took a shaft and he put a little took a mud ball and stuck it on the end of the shaft and you had to swing it in order for the ball not to come off before you get to the impact, he wanted you to learn to hold, hold, and then release and let let it go after the strike. So he he loves to, to teach using analogies and just you know other things. He'll talk to you is more than he'll he'll show you. It's it's a he's a really good teacher, but he talks to you and he can talk you through a swing where other people are giving you places to put your hands and all these kind of uh, technical um, lessons. He's not that way at all. He's a natural player and he's a field player and that's what, it, and he's an adaptive player. I so like that. Approach. Yeah. So if it's cold, he swings different. If it's hot, it, it doesn't, you know, and then he's always talking about the lie. They say, well, how far he said, I don't know how far it is till I get down there and, what club to hit till I see the lie and the conditions and what I'm aiming at. That's right. Well, he didn't have a formula. He just looked at everything and he said, this is what is required of the shot. So he visualized his shot, visualized it. And then he just executed the ball flight he needed to, 
to get the job done. Sort of the way baseball players used to hit balls before analytics and launch angles right. and everything interrupted he's the whole. A, he's a very natural, reactive golfer. Um, I know that if his swing wasn't working, he'd change it on a, on the spot. He played at the highest level. Yes. Uh, what did he – did he learn the game by playing or did he learn the game then taught and then became a player? Because they see in the 40s and 50s he and Demerit were pretty dominant along with obviously Hogan and Sneed. But he had pretty good competition yet still won two majors. He won the 56 Masters and the 56 PGA months – maybe two months apart. I mean mm – -hmm. How good was your father? He had to be the best in the, in, in the game at that point. Yes, and he also won four tournaments in a row. Not four tournaments, you know, that he played in, but four, like, that whole month, he won every tournament he played in, in 1952. How old were you at that time, Mike? Well, I, I was born in 54, so I'm 68, and so he won those before I was born. Yeah. But he he won eight thousand dollars and he won every tournament in the whole month. <laughs> eight thousand dollars. Well, that was the other thing is we we learned from others that it was hard to make a living and oftentimes back in the old days you had to put your own money up to win your own money. So being right. a teaching pro like your grandfather and your father uh, paid the bills, right? Yes. Now, I would say that much in a month. Yeah, I would say that to answer your question directly, he learned how to play from his father. That's how he learned to play golf. And they would just send him out on the course and make him play. Back then, people didn't practice. There was no really place to practice. So he played a lot. He played all the time, and he played many rounds. And he also played with older – when he was young, he played with a lot of older gentlemen, and that's how he got good because he was young and he played with an older gentleman at that River Oaks. And then there was a lot of good players in Houston and comes through there that see my grandfather. So he he really learned to play from his father. And then, of course, the other teachers that came, Johnny Revolta and uh, Pennick, all were um, mentored by Jack Burke Sr. Jack Burke Sr. is the key to the whole thing, really. He was an amazing – I wish I had met him, but I didn't. Um, but he was an amazing man. So you could, com you could compare the way your dad – taught the game of golf, much like the way Pennick, Harvey Pennick taught the game of golf. Um, yes. In a simple they're fashion, very, right? Yes. They're very common. They use common sense. And the other thing I think my dad's really biggest, I think he admired the most was Ben Hogan. And Ben Hogan had a tremendous relationship with Jimmy Demerit. They were very close friends. And so – Mr. Demerit was a totally different golfer than my father. He, when he was at the pro shop uh, at River Oaks, my grandfather was teaching. And at the end of the day, they bring all the clubs into the bag room. And Mr. Demerit's job was to clean them. And back then it was carbon steel and you had to buff the uh, irons with a buffer to get the rust off of them and put them back in the bag. So he would stand in front of the buffer and hold that iron and he would buff those irons and he had to stand there and, and his, he got pie pie arms and he had a really narrow stance, hold those carbon steel iron and he'd clean them all and put them up. He was a very strong man and his legs were strong and he could stand and play golf with a very narrow stance. He never practiced. 
he, all he did, he had an old wooden club and he took the sole plate off and filled it full of lead. And then he put the sole plate back on it. And that's what he swung was a heavy club. He swung a heavy club for anybody ever knew what they were. Yeah. He created that heavy club. Claude Harmon might've created with Mo Della Porta and maybe the, had the, 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 the lob wedge. Cause the year that Claude played in the open at Wingfoot and, and 59, he, mm -hmm. he got it up and down every single time. But before the open, he went back in the shop and Mo bent it. <laughs> so they, they invented, um, my grandfather invented um, the cord line grip. Basically, um, he was traveling and he had a flat tire. And so he looked at, you know, pulled over, trying to looked at the tire and he looked inside that, that two ply tire and there was a cords all inside that tire. And he grabbed that rubber and he said, wow, this would be a, this would be a good way to, to put a grip on a golf club because it's, it's textured. And so they went back and they figured that out. And that's the first cord line grip was my Jack Burke senior invented it. He did yeah. not, he did not renew the patent, unfortunately, or I'd be talking to you. <laughs> We'd be talking to you from a different location. High in the sky yeah. in a private jet. Yeah. yeah. So he was a, he was an interesting, I wish I had met him. And I met a lot of the members from Rogues that later joined champions. They would come out to champions and they knew my grandfather and I would sit with them and they would tell me a lot about him. We're talking about Jimmy Demerit, and I know he's a big impression on you and your, your father and uh, your life. And one of the greatest uh, bits I think Billy and I have ever seen is this bit with Jimmy Demerit on uh, uh, the Lucy show. A lot of people don't realize that uh, Jimmy Demerit learned a lot about golf from uh, Lucy. There was a lot of things he didn't understand about how to address the ball. She's given him tips about how to address the ball and, and even before standing up to it, how to approach the shot. <laughs> Not many people could do it that way, but Jimmy Demerit figured out how with a lot of help from Lucille Ball. Yeah, some people learned the Varden grip, the interlock, the overlock. The uh, <laughs> Jimmy Demerit learned from I Love Lucy the hop, skip, and a jump drive, <laughs> <laughs> which was later mimicked by uh, or on some level by Adam Sandler. And I just loved that video. And, and well, hope all aside, Jimmy Demerit was one of the big time guys in golf, and your family had a good relationship with him, Mike. Yes, he, you know, he worked for my grandfather, obviously, Jack Burke Sr., River Oaks Country Club. And then, you know, when the war was over, everybody got jobs up east, and Mr. Demerit was um, instrumental in getting my dad, you know, to go with him. They just took, took him under his wing, and he really, you know, as my dad was a young man, Mr. Demerit would babysit all the kids while Jack Burke Sr. and my grandmother, Mimi, would go out to dinner. Demerit would work all day at the pro shop, and then he'd have to go over to the Burke house and babysit all those knuckleheads. And so <laughs> after he got on tour, um, he told my dad, he said, I didn't know I'd be babysitting you for 70 years. <laughs> so that's what he... He actually, they were like family, really. 
And the Demerit family and the Burke family are like family. And I feel that way about Mr. Demerit because my dad kept playing on the tour when Mr. Demerit had retired from the tour. So he had to babysit us. And he said, man, I've been babysitting you, Burks, for too long. <laughs> so when my dad was on tour at Champions, we'd go out to the club and Mr. Demerit would have to take care of me and my brother and all of us little kids. And so he really was um, a mentor to my father. And he's also a mentor to me and my brothers, my brother and all of us kids around there at the club. He was very playful and he had a wonderful sense of humor. He was very funny. And um, but he, he was a very happy person when, when you saw him on the golf course. He was he was never angry or brooding or that. He was just a very fun, loving person to be around. And he was very nice to the young people. He would play golf with us. We'd be out there playing a bunch of us little kids and he'd, he'd come out and join us. And just play golf with us. How many guys were like that? I saw some of the. Older guys in the 74 Open, you know, J.C. Sneed, he was no fun. And, uh, you know, he had a, a, a fair reputation. But, you know, that's the way he approached golf. But two things that come to mind. Well, Jimmy DeMeritt didn't need to go to a health club. That buffing those irons. Now I know why in Moe's shop he had all those buffers. I just right. think that was for something else. But, you know, it does occur to me that, Back in the late 60s, early 70s, clubs did get rusty. So they were made of that material. So that's what they that's had correct. to put in, right? That's I never correct. thought of that. I, I just thought. And, well, his, and, he, and he had a really, really narrow stance because he had to stick, you know, and his balance was to hold that club on that buffer. And he had a wonderful swing and his hands were real strong. And he didn't make a big, like my dad had a bigger shoulder more core, but Mr. Demerit had a really short little swing and he hit it dead straight every time. And that's why Ben Hogan always picked him to play in the match play events because Demerit was such a good driver of the golf ball. And Mr. Demerit was, I think Mr. Hogan admired him greatly. And he would, they spoke all the time on the phone and talked a lot. They were very friendly. And Jimmy Demerit and Ben Hogan and my dad were very close. When they had the Houston Open at Champions, Mr. Demerit would bring in Ben Hogan early. and He would practice uh, for like two weeks. And there was, you know, he was playing the Houston Open when he, when he was in his 50s. So there was a, you know, he would go over to the Jackrabbit course and practice. He liked to practice into the wind on the golf course. So he was practicing over there on 14 uh, on Jackrabbit, hitting it into the prevailing wind. And all these other young pros are at the Houston Open. Say, oh, hey, J J Jimmy, how come how come Ben Hogan can go over there and practice on the golf course? We can't go over there and practice. And Demerit looked at him. He said, "Son, when you win nine majors, you can practice over there too." Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of that's the other <laughs> question that came to my head is there were two different types of personalities, Ben Hogan yes. and Demerit, and maybe that's why it worked. Well. It, I, I spent a lot of time with Mr. Hogan. We were very fortunate to have, you know, when he came, we were on the driving range drive, you know, driving everybody crazy and we get to shag balls for him. We'd pick them up back then. They didn't, you know, you just took them out and they hit you and you knew he changed clubs when the ball went over your head about eight <laughs> yards and you just moved the bag and we'd come in and, and I would sit and watch him practice. I've caddied for him. We played golf with him. 
and he was the nicest man. He had the best manners. He was very well dressed. And the thing I remember about him is he always had a money clip on him and he always had new money. His money was clean, just <laughs> like his shoes and his and he was very nice, very polite, and he had a good sense of humor. Now, people talk about Ben Hogan. He was the opposite of the way he was on the golf course. When he was on the golf course, it was all business. But when he's off the golf course, he was very, very nice, very polite. He was nice to a lot of people, talked to the caddies. He was just a nice man. He was very quiet. But he was and he had a great sense of humor and Jimmy DeMerit could make him laugh. And that's why they got along so well. They were he was very nice to us as little kids, too. Was Hogan good friends with Sneed as well? You know, I don't know that I would say that. I know. I don't know. We never saw Sam Sneed. We saw a lot of Mr. Hogan. He was good friends. Um he was good friends with like my dad's buddies was Mike Suchek, Jay Bear. Those are the guys. And Miller Barber was really close to my dad. And my dad would give him lessons all the time. And his nickname was Peaches. Huh. But his name in the public was Mr. X. Why'd they call him Peaches? That was just his nickname. <laughs> he was, he was from uh, Northeast Texas. And that's just his name. They just called him Peaches. He was really nice. Uh-huh. We loved him. We had an opportunity to, because of champions to see all the pros come through. Every single pro that probably won a major after the war through the early 80s and, you know, when we had the tournament there, came through champions to see Mr. Demerit. When you shagged for Ben Hogan, or as you say, Mr. Hogan, how many times did he hit you? Not on purpose. He was just going at the target. Yeah. You were the target. You put the bag down and then you just stand behind it and he would hit it right at the bag. And you wouldn't have to walk more than two or three feet to pick the ball up. Ever put any, did he ever fly any in the bag? No, he could get really close. I mean, like every one of them with a driver too. I mean, it wasn't just a wedge. He was like very precise. And then he would wave you in, they bring the balls, you'd drop them and then he'd send you back out. I know he had clubs. I don't know if yes. he had his own clubs before, but did he use what balls did he use? Did he have Hogan balls manufactured at that time or was he I using think, some other I think balls? back then they were a lot of them were on staff. Like my dad was with McGregor and um, Jimmy Damaris with top flight. So they all had their own staff ball back then and you could play, but I'll tell you how nice a man he is. So when we were little kids, he would come early to the Houston open and practice. And so on Monday, we could play golf. It's like I could play with all my little buddies from the locker room, like the locker room attendants' sons and sons of the employees. We could all play on Monday. And my dad and Jimmy DeMerit and Ben Hogan were playing on Cypress, getting ready for the Houston Open. And number seven goes south and number two goes north. And all of us were on number two on Cypress Creek getting ready to hit. And they were going down number seven and they saw us over on number two. And they, and my dad comes way, walks over and brings Ben Hogan and Jimmy to merit and says, all right, boys, we want you, we want to watch y'all hit. And I said, dad, I'm not going to hit in front of Ben Hogan. Are you kidding me? 
and everybody else is, you know, no, we're not going to hit. He goes, no, you need to hit. I said, well, we've been working on our clubs. They're not in good shape. And they're, they're kind of bad. He said, hit. So we all got up there, hit a little low shot. And we were complaining, you know, our clubs weren't the best, blah, 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 blah. Ben Hogan didn't say one word. He just watched us hit. So they go play number seven and we go down number two. He plays in the Houston Open. I think he finished in the top 10. He played really good for, for somebody before the senior tour started. In about, oh, I'd say six weeks or eight weeks after that, my uncle Jimmy was the pro at Champions, called us in and said, I got something for you. I said, I thought I was in trouble. I'm always getting called in for something. And I go in the pro shop and there's five boxes on the wall. He said, that's your box. I said, what? Ben Hogan Golf Company. He had sent every single one of the kids that we teed off a new set of clubs. And okay. I opened up the box. I had a brand new set of Hogan Woods, irons, bag, putter, wedges, everything. And each kid that we played with got a new set of clubs from Mr. Hogan. Cause we, we, we were embarrassed because we had a bunch of ragtag set of clubs as a little kid, but that's how thoughtful of a man he was that he cared enough about, you know, five little kids playing golf that he sent them all a set of clubs. No old, one knows how kind he was. No one. How old were you back then, Mike, when that, that I was probably 12, maybe 12. Your eyes must've lit up. Oh my gosh. We went and played that day right then. <laughs> you played until it was dark. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there was a side to Ben Hogan that a lot of people didn't see. He was a very, very giving man. Very. If you if you look back and you went back and you brought the balls in and maybe you cleaned off his clubs for him after you shagged for him, you ever take a close look at the iron he was hitting and and and, and see the little how small was the mark that he made? It's right in the middle of the club. Right in the middle. No bigger than a dime, maybe half of a it dime. It was right in the middle. Unbelievable, right? And he, his, the, the gentleman that uh, ran our bag room is named Booker Brown, and that was Mr. Hogan's club repairman, and he would bring in all of his woods and wrap them because he would change shafts all the time. And so the whipping around those wooden shafts was very difficult to do, and Booker was his big strong guy and he could really get the whipping tight and that's what Ben Hogan liked plus when he changed grips he took the coat hangers he took the middle of the coat hanger out and he cut it and then he took that middle coat and he taped it on the inside of the grip before he put the rubber grip on he taped it to where he had a weak grip and it was not on the center of the bias of the shaft it was a little over to the right and so when he gripped the club he had a weak it made him have a weak grip and he never hit a hook. And I watched him build those grips many a day. And there was a little reminder in the back of the grip that kept him, his grip where he wanted it. He was a really, I wonder how many times he'd have to go get new clubs by wearing them out and, and grips. He must've wore them out weekly. Yeah, he could, and he didn't wear a glove. So it was interesting. Um, I don't know how often he changed clubs. We would see him for the Houston Open. And then, of course, he was the captain of the Ryder Cup team at Champions in 1967. So we saw him for a long time that week. Go back to what this, this, how this came about, Jimmy DeMeritt and your dad founding Champions back in 1957, which probably was like 
climbing Mount Everest, right? That was Correct. a big deal. Houston was growing. And so Mr. Demerit, my dad, they, there was really no money in pro golf. I mean, you had to, hell, they didn't even pay. Uh, if you didn't finish in the top 10, a lot of times they wouldn't, you didn't get paid. So they were looking for a way to get off the tour and make a living. And they wanted to, they built champions as, as a way to do that. And that was way back in the fifties. And they knew the airport was going to move from the south side of Houston to the north side. So they went and looked at property out on the north side of town on a road called 1960. And they bought 650 acres and Ralph Plummer came and they built Champions Golf Club. And the gentleman that named Champions is Jack Valente. Jack Valente was a promoter. He was a PR guy here in Houston. And later he went on to run motion picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, they said, what are you going to call it? He goes, well, I got two champions here. He said, let's just call it Champions Golf Club. And that's how they named it. And that was Jack Valenti's uh, idea. My yeah. dad and Mr. DeMerit agreed, and they all, that's, that's how it started. Comes back to movies, Billy. Always does. The thing about Mr. DeMerit that I think is really interesting is that he was a very talented. He could sing. He was a really good singer, and he was really good friends with Bing Crosby and Phil Harris and all the Hollywood guys loved him. He was really funny and he could sing like crazy and he was a pilot and he had several airplanes. So he was an amazing human being from all the, and he played golf for fun almost, but he also started the tour, the, the big tour before the big tour started, Mr. Demerit played. And then finally they organized from a winter time, uh, event, then it would be him a year round. So he really started the big tour with Gene Saracen and the fellas, and he played, won three masters and the majors and all that. And then later, he was the first television commentator with Gene Saracen on the Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. And he had coined a lot of phrases like he was real funny, and the guy hit it up on the green. He goes, Where'd he hit it? He goes, Oh, he hit it on the frog hair right by this. <laughs> so he coined the word frog hair. So he was, he started the big tour or was one of the organizers of the big tour. He became the first really television commentator for golf with Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. And the gentleman that ran Shell's Wonderful Golf was named Fred Rayfield. And Fred came and said, and like, I think it was like 1979, he didn't have anything to do. And he was sitting in Mr. America. He said, we need something to do. Let's start a tournament. So they said, all right, Demerit had a, ownership in onion creek in austin he said i'll do a tournament provided we do it at onion creek and fred rayfield said good and that was the liberty mutual legends of golf first senior event it was a team event and that's where the senior golf tour started and that's fred rayfield was the producer so demerit if you think about it he started the big tour as organized became the first real television commentator and he started the senior tour he was an unbelievable person. I yeah, spent a lot of time with him. First, great personality for it. You could see it yeah. uh, on that clip with uh, on the Lucy show. He just had a great charm. He must have had tremendous charisma, kind of like in the in the league of Palmer, Arnold Palmer charisma. He you? was he was he was famous before people were famous. He the the Hollywood people loved him. He was he was like the man. But the funny, the, the best story for Demerit and me in, in my life was 
I was at University of Houston playing on the golf team, and it was a Monday, and I played, you know, I was going to play uh, between my freshman and sophomore year. I was, played Cypress, and I played the first nine. I played really good, you know, nine holes, and I've shot like one under. And so I was playing good. I walked in the clubhouse. There's nobody in there. I walked in. There's Demerit at his desk. And he's sitting there and he's opening in his mail and he's not talking. And he's opening his mail. And I'm telling him about my round. I said, oh, man, you should have seen my drive on one, number two, number three, birdie. And then, you know, I lipped out and then I get around and I birdie eight and then 34. And I said, God, I might have playing so good. I said, I think I think um, I think I'm just going to turn pro. I'm going to get what the heck with the University of Houston. I'm just going to turn pro. And so he's opening the mail. He ain't listening to anything I'm saying until I said that. And he was pulling checks out of, like, I remember this. He was pulling a check out. It was an I Love Lucy residual check, royalty <laughs> check. So he's taking checks out of envelopes. And I'm telling him about my stupid little nine-hole score. And he goes, what did you say? I said, Mr. Demerit, you heard that nine-holes. You, I'm going to turn pro. He goes, whoa. Hold on a minute. He said, you know how I turned pro? I said, no, how did you turn pro? He goes, well, I played at River Oaks. I couldn't find anybody that could beat me. Went over to Brayburn. I couldn't find anybody that could beat me. I went over to Memorial Park. I couldn't find anybody that beat me. He said, I had, he said, I couldn't find anybody that could beat me in Houston. And I had to leave town. He said, now, since you've been telling me about your little nine-hole match, three people walk by this office that can beat you. <laughs> don't turn pro he said go finish your education and stay an amateur so i would you know he told me he said you, you know tell unless you can beat everybody in town don't don't leave town and don't turn pro so i followed his advice and i went and finished my education at university of houston and got a job in wall street and many, you know that was three years or four years later the phone rings in the office and this lady's answering the phone and she goes, Mike, you're the new guy. And there's somebody on the phone named Richard Demerit. He went, calling you. Of course, everybody in my office was golfers. And they said, oh, Jimmy Demerit's calling Mike. What's there? And he called me. He said, Mike, what you doing? I said, I'm working. He goes, I just want to tell you, I really uh, admire you for finishing your education. And I'm very proud of you. And he said, I'm just calling to, to, to tell you, I appreciate you, you know, taking my advice and not turning pro and, thought you could really play and I said well thank you Mr. Demerit and he said what are you doing and I told him he goes well when you figure out what you're doing call me I'll send you some money and I was a Wall Street broker at the time so he remembered life was uh, kind of simple just kind of basic honest people telling honest things you you tell that to somebody today as Billy Harmon would say you get locked up <laughs> <laughs> he was he was like very witty so he loved draft beer and he would stand in the locker room and he would drink at the bar in boxer shorts and he always had silk boxers and they were always polka dots and they had patent he's really funny and he's standing there just barefoot in boxers and so this one little guy comes in there and he looks at mr demary and he had a little beer belly and he goes wow mr demary you've got a little beer belly and he goes let me tell you something, son. I'm going to be in that box a long time. I'm going to be skinny in the box. <laughs> 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 I 
And so, but he was very witty and he was very approachable. And that's the thing they all had in common is you could go right up and talk to him. There was no pretense to him. They didn't, they didn't have egos. They didn't, they were just normal human beings that had excelled and had a talent beyond belief, but they were very approachable, very nice. My dad and Jimmy DeMerit, Ben Hogan, they were all normal human beings that just happened to be world-class golfers. Well, they taught you a thing or two because the moment Billy and I met you in the lower locker room, um, lounge area just setting up for our poker game you were very nice to us and we appreciate that i'm looking at this picture here and you know you talk about your dad's swing and you talk about demerit swing you can almost see that pronounced here demerit's kind of got that follow-through and his legs are kind of tight but your dad has that more kind of round you could see he made a big turn to get to that big follow-through right that must must have been taken earlier in your dad's career because he's still holding the club i think demerit might have thrown his though (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's correct. And Mr. Demerit was a tap putter. My dad was a, they've had different putting, different driving. My dad hooked the ball. Demerit hit a little fade. But Demerit did his own thing. He didn't, you know, I don't think I ever got a lesson from him ever. He just played. He didn't give swing lessons. He never, he just said, I just swing a heavy club. And that's how he practiced. He would swing it out in front of the pro shop all the time and then go play. He never hit a ball, really. I never saw him practice much. Well, if you think about the old courses, Wingfoot's the best example of it. They didn't really have driving ranges. Wingfoot's driving. No. You probably have to keep a seven iron or less to hit it over that fence there when you're there for the Anderson. It's right. it, Think of those things, you know. So they were, you know, my dad and Mr. Demerit, they didn't practice. And, and I think Mr. Hogan was the first one that started practicing. But they were adaptive players. In other words, they just the conditions, the weather, clubs, balls weren't that great. They just they just did what they had to to get the job done. And my dad had a different swing. You know, he said almost every day. He said, "If the wind's blowing, I'm I'm swinging different than it's not." So what they taught us is to be imaginative and be don't be afraid to make a change. A lot of guys get fixated on a swing plane and this just and then then to get off their rails and they can't get it back my dad would change swings in the middle of a round if he wasn't hitting it good so he wasn't afraid to make a change he wasn't afraid to change and that way when you're playing bad it doesn't shock you and then you figure out a way to get better during the round get the ball in the hole yes so we sometimes do this exercise you're in one of these meetups and there's three people and one part over in this side of the room is one person in the back of the room is another person over here is another person, Ben Hogan. We're going to leave your dad out. Cause I think you'd go spend time with your dad. If you had the opportunity every, every set, just like Billy would do that with his dad, or I would do that with my dad. But the three people are Hogan's over here on the left, Arnold Palmer's in the back of the room and Demerit's in there and you get to go and you can only visit with one person. Who are you going to go spend 20 minutes with? Jimmy Demerit. That says a lot. That's incredible. No, he he was my grandfather's Jack Burke Sr. That was his guy. That says you a know, lot. It, I remember know. seeing him on the wonderful world of golf in the mid 60s and, and beyond mm-hmm. and always thinking that, that this guy's got a lot of charm and, and, and yes. a lot of charisma. 
Yes. And then you see him on the Lucy clip, and it, it, it you know, mm -hmm. he gets right the into it as if he's a professional. The other thing is, he was a really smart, very intelligent investor. He he did really well in the real estate business. He he was a great land man. He was a, he completely understood the capital markets in the stock market because I was his stockbroker until he died, and you know his family still has uh, the demerit estate in my office. So, but and I talked to him. He loved the stock market and he loved investing, whether it was real estate or stocks or bonds or whatever. But he was a very well-read, intelligent man. He was very intelligent, and I learned a lot from him about investing because he was so patient. You know, he wasn't in a hurry. That's the answer to a lot of questions in, in life is patience. Yes. Yes, and he didn't have an ego at all. He never talked about himself, really. And my dad doesn't talk. That's what the great men are, men that they're not self-absorbed. And they, they're in my, and they've told me this many times, there's two people in life. You know, there's givers and there's takers. And these gentlemen were all givers. And the givers have all the happiness, they have all the wealth, they have all the friends, and they live a good life. It's sort of nostalgic to hear these stories about the, these great people from back in the day. And I guess the past always looks nostalgic to people. But today, you can sort of see some of that forming with guys like, uh, you know, Ricky Fowler out there and Palmer before him. It's 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 wonderful when you see those guys. They stand out to me, and again, they don't know they're how how great they are, which is what makes them so great. That's a great point you made, Mike, and I I appreciate hearing it from you. Thank you. I love Wingfoot, by the way. What's your favorite hole at Wingfoot? Number ten. Ten West. Absolutely. Where you won in the playoff this year in the end. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank Billy you, Mike. Made better because of this hour we spent with you. Thanks so much. Well, you gentlemen are wonderful, and I look forward to seeing you the next year. Play with us. So you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care if all your members threw a few clubs down there. No, they will go go, go get, get them. So your but, dad and you what do you feel it in your legs? I feel it in my. I went to my right leg, and now it's like I threw this head, like this head was going to come off. And I'm going to throw this club head. I'm going to throw this club head out. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show Ritter. and hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified Movie classics. new episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard job. and hit them off. That's 36 holes.